exalt you, Jesus, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We thank you, Father, for all the wonderful things that you've done for us. We thank you for the even greater things that are yet to come. For we believe that we are the last day church, the ones that will see Jesus come and receive us unto himself. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Psalm 103, verse 7. It says, He made known his ways unto Moses and his acts unto the children of Israel. Paul wrote to the church and told us that the things that are recorded and um, uh, kept a record of in the Old Testament, God's dealing with Israel and so forth, that it's to be an example or an in-sample is the way the King James translates it, but to be an example to us. In other words, we're supposed to learn from the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament during the Old Covenant times so that we might not make the same mistakes they make. When we think about the things that God did in the Old Testament, one of the first things that comes to my mind is how God dealt with uh, Pharaoh on Israel's behalf. You remember the story how that Moses was... Uh, talking to God in the burning bush and got instruction from him on what God's plan was for not only his life but also for the nation of Israel. And the first thing that God told Moses to do is to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now the Bible tells us that when Moses approached Pharaoh and delivered the message, Pharaoh responded, by saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. That's in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. It was a challenge. Pharaoh issued a challenge to God to show who he was. And everything that took place with the, the plagues and the, the miracles and signs and wonders that took place was God revealing himself to, an, uh, to Pharaoh who didn't know him. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God said of himself, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, it says, For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them, Upon their gods also, the Lord executed judgments. So the, the miracles, the plagues, and the, the different things that took place before Pharaoh in Egypt was God revealing himself, showing himself to be the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth, and to execute judgments on the, the gods of Egypt. Now, is, Egypt has uh, a myriad of uh, different gods that they, had, they were worshiping and, and so forth. The first thing that took place when Moses was still talking to God in the burning bush, Moses didn't know God either. 
It's not like Israel had been worshiping God for a long period of time or for any period of time for that matter. And God answered their prayers or answered their cry. This was a nation of people that didn't know him. And you remember that that Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. Moses asked for a sign. I'm not sure why you'd need a sign when you're talking to a burning bush. But nevertheless, he asked for a sign. And God asked him what he had in his hand, and he had a staff. He told him to cast it down on the ground. And when he did, it turned into a snake. Now, snakes played great prominence in Egypt's history. It was a symbol of the strength of Egypt, who was the world's superpower at that point in time. And Moses threw this, uh, his staff down, and it turned into a, a snake. We have to assume that it was a cobra if it had any meaning attached to it. And Moses ran from his stick. God told him to reach out his hand and take it in his hand, and he did, and it turned back into the staff. So from the very beginning, God dealing with Moses getting him ready to go back to Pharaoh and demand that the people be let go, let go. From the beginning, it was the judgment of God upon things on the earth that they considered to be gods. The first plague was turning the Nile River into blood and really all the, all the water in the land into blood was an attack, or the execution of judgment upon one of Egypt's God, the second plague was bringing frogs from the Nile. The third plague was nice lice or gnats, and it was a judgment on a different God of theirs. The fourth plague was flies. The fifth plague was the death of livestock. The sixth plague was boils, and it was a judgment against several gods over health and disease. And the uh, magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, could not stand before them in the midst of that plague. And then God sent, told Pharaoh through Moses that he had something more in mind with the last plagues, the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth plagues. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, God said, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none other like me in all the earth. The seventh plague was hail mingled with fire. The eighth plague was locusts. The ninth plague was darkness. And the last plague was not only against the God of Egypt, but remember, Pharaohs considered themselves to be God. And so the death of the firstborn was the plague that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Pharaoh was not God and that God was. Now Israel, the people of Israel, witnessed these things. They experienced these things. Most Bible scholars agree that the ten plagues took place 
in a 12 to 18 month period of time. And so they're going from one miracle after another, one act of God after another, with sometimes just a few days or maybe a few weeks separating the different plagues. Finally, you remember the story after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh relented and sent Israel away. But then he had a change of heart. And he decided to go back and slaughter them, just kill them, rather than let them go. And so then we had the, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea when Israel crossed over on dry land. And when Pharaoh sent his armies after them, the waters came back together and drowned them all. So Israel starts off toward the promised land. God has told them all about the promised land in that uh, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. He also told them who lived in that land. That's something that gets overlooked by a lot of people, but there were several occasions, three different occasions, in fact, when God told Moses to deliver the message to the children of Israel about who lived in the promised land. And so over a period of just a little more than two years, they come to Mount Sinai. God gives Moses the, the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the, the keeping of the law. And then they come to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 is where Moses is instructed to send spies into the land. And these 12 spies, one for each of the tribes of Israel, bring back the fruit of the land. And it's beyond anything that they could have imagined. And they recognize that it's what God had told them all along. This is exactly the land of fruit, the land of, uh, that flows with milk and honey. Just like God said. But then they have something else to report. Beginning in verse 27, and they told him, and said, we came into the land whether thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwelt in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. And said, let us go up at once and, over and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Well, folks, wasn't Pharaoh's army stronger than, than them too? They have completely put away and failed to remember and to recognize what God had done for them just a few, a few short years before. They failed to recognize and attach the proper meaning or priority or attention to the things that God had already performed on their behalf before Pharaoh. So their problem is that they don't see themselves as strong as, strong as the people in the land. We be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. 
And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Chapter 14, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and against the whole congregation. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us in unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey, were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Now, folks, there's two kinds of people in the world, two kinds of people in the church. You've got one category of people that are willing to accept the dominion and authority that God gave unto man when he put him, in here, on, put him here on the earth. Genesis 1.26, you may recall, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the work of our hands. The second category of people are people that want somebody to tell them what to do. This word captain is an interesting word because it literally means in the Hebrew to shake your head. In other words, to shake your head no. When they say let us make a captain and go back to the land of Egypt, they're saying that they would rather be slaves and folks, a lot of Christians are the same way. They'd rather be slaves to the work of the enemy, glad that they're saved, looking forward to Jesus' return, but in a position where somebody else is telling them what steps to take and what to do in their lives, rather than take authority, utilize the authority that God has given us. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Now, folks, the, ten, the other ten spies had the same opportunity to believe what Caleb and Joshua said. They had the same opportunity to interpret the circumstances that they see the walls around the city of Jericho, the Amorites in one part of the land, the Canaanites in another part of the land, the Hittites and the Jebusites and whatever other groups where they live and where they're dwelling in the promised land. They had the same opportunity to judge what they saw, judge the physical characteristics of the people, but to judge it through the filter of what God said concerning the land that it belonged to them, 
and that he would deliver it into their hands. I don't think it's coincidence that the example that we're supposed to take from this was whether or not we're going to walk in doubt or walk in fear here on this earth when God has done so many miraculous things to show his love and his concern and his mercy upon us in each and every part of our lives. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them? They were supposed to learn something from the signs that took place in Egypt. They were supposed to learn something from the things that God did before Mo, uh, through Moses before Pharaoh and executed judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. Moses intercedes for the people. God pardons the people. But then in chapter, uh, in four, chapter 14, verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. There are two things that God settles and establishes concerning the children of Israel at this point in time. Two verses, verse 21 and verse 28, where God establishes or communicates to them. He really doesn't start something new, but he communicates to Israel eternal laws. Notice in both verses, it says, but as truly as I live, as truly as I live. A part of it is added, part of this phrase is added by the translators to try to make sense of it. But God is using his own life, his, his very existence to identify these eternal laws. How does God live? There are two characteristics of God in his life one is he's eternal. He's without beginning and he's without end. And the second is he's unchanging. So in these two verses, verse 21 and verse 28, he establishes or reveals two eternal and unchanging laws. Verse 28, we'll start with the, the second one first. Verse 28, it says, as truly as I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. The eternal unchanging law, which again is not at this point being established or started. God simply communicates as clearly and as directly as possible that the spoken word is the vehicle or the means whereby authority is, is exercised in this earth. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. But the other one in verse 21, notice it's got the same phrase, as truly as I live, 
All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now folks, let that sink in. The eternal unchanging law of God is identified in these two verses. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. We are governed by the words that we speak. We're governed by the confession of our mouth. What we say we will have, we will have. This is the same principle of faith that Jesus identified in Mark chapter 11. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, everybody in this story in Numbers 13 and 14 get exactly what they say. The ten spies say, would God we had lived, uh, had died in Egypt and not come out to this place. They died in that very same day. The Bible says that it was a plague, but literally that doesn't mean sickness or disease. It means God took their life on the spot. Caleb and Joshua got exactly what they said. They're the ones that said we were able to take the land. Now their taking the land was postponed for 40 years. But they got exactly what they said too. And the congregation of Israel joined in with the ten spies. And said that it would be better for them to die in the wilderness and over the next 40 years, they did die in the wilderness. Everybody got exactly what they said. It's an eternal and unchanging law of God. But folks, the other one, the other eternal law in verse 21 is that all the earth shall be filled with my glory. It is just as true. It is just as reliable. It is just as certain that the glory of the Lord will be seen throughout all the world just like it was seen when Moses went before Pharaoh. Remember these things are examples to us. I believe we need to bank on the certainty of God operating in the same miraculous way when Moses went before Pharaoh I believe we're going to see a lot of the same things in these last days to facilitate the glory of the Lord being seen in all the earth. Verse 21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Verse 22, because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness... And have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. <clears throat> now, folks, we know the problem is identified in chapter 13. When the ten spies come back, the Bible says they delivered an evil report, saying, The land which we went to search. 
is a good land full of milk and honey, like God said. But it eateth up the inhabitants thereof. They didn't come back in some sense of unholiness. They didn't come back as what we might consider to be sinners. They came back saying, we can't do what God said. And God said that was a temptation. He refers to ten times how these men had provoked him. It means all ten of the, or ten of the twelve. It means ten of them provoked God. Now think about what that means. When God talks about somebody provoking him. That would certainly have to be a sinful act. But the provoking was simply refusing to believe what he said. The provoking, the ten times, were ten men that said we can't do what God said we can do. Two eternal laws, two unchanging laws, two laws that all the earth will be judged by. As you have spoken in God's ears, so shall he do unto you. But the second, just as much an example to us as the eternal and unchanging law of faith, is that the whole earth shall be filled with my glory. Now, folks, as close as we're getting to the end, this is a promise, a declaration, an eternal and unchanging law of what God plans to do in the last days. I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. You remember the story, but I'm just going to hit a couple of high spots here, beginning in verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in some place, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem. In the house of the Lord before the new court. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then will thou hear and help. 
And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Now, folks, this is a, a, a wonderful prayer. And there's so many good things in it for us to recognize how that the people are claiming the fulfillment of a promise that God has made. But did you notice, what verse is it? Did you notice in verse 12, O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are on thee. The implication is that the reason they're praying is because five of their enemies have banded together to come to destroy them in one event. In other words, when they say, we have no might against this great company, what if it was just the, uh, the Moabites that came? Or what if it was just the Amorites that came? What if it was just the people from Mount Seir that came? The implication is, the reason we need your help, God, is because we're outnumbered. Smith Wilkinsworth said something that rings so true throughout the years and the ages. And that is, Great victories only come from great battles. Great victories only come through great battles. Well, we know how God answered them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon a prophet and said, don't be afraid of these, your, your enemies. You'll not need to fight in this battle, for the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. He told them where to find them the next morning and instructed them to go out against them. Jehoshaphat put the singers and the praisers in front of the army. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said ambushments and caused them all to fight against each other and destroy each other. And so that when the children of Israel came upon the place where they've been fighting against, the enemies have been fighting against each other, everybody's dead. And the jewels and the riches and the things that are left behind takes them three days to haul off. What does God get greater glory from? You winning a small battle or you winning a big battle? I think for the most part, most people, maybe most of us, would be satisfied to just fight little battles along the way. But great victories only come through great battles. Now this is part of the examples of God's dealing with Israel that's left for us too. 
Again, the two eternal and unchanging laws. God will deal with you as you have spoken in his ears. But the second is equally as important, is equally eternal, and is equally unchanging. That the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the beautiful of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. We learn later on in the story that this man is over 40 years old. So for the entirety of his life, he's never walked, he's been a cripple. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. And Peter fastened his eyes on him with John and said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, folks, most of the church takes this story in the book of Acts, and they accept it to be true, but they don't consider it to be an example of modern-day church. Because a, a large portion of the church, maybe the majority, are of the impression that Peter and John, as part of Jesus' disciples, the original 12 disciples, had some kind of extra power because they were apostles. Or they had some special standing with God. But once the 12 apostles died and passed off the, from the scene, then all that was done away with. But folks, I want you to realize people haven't changed. 2,000 years ago, people are the same then like, as they are now. And Peter recognizes, perhaps by the Holy Ghost, but Peter recognizes the two objections that would be made throughout the, the end of the church age. They said specifically, we don't have any power that, that somebody else can't have. And they said, we're not holier than any of the rest of people, you people included, I guess. It wasn't by our own power or our own holiness that we made this man to walk. So the number one 
criticism. The number one excuse to be made for the healing power of God, the miracle working power of God not being in operation today as it was in the beginning of the church. Peter shoots that down right, right away, completely out of hand. Why look ye on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Well, if it wasn't their power and wasn't their holiness, what did do the job? Verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Skip with me to chapter 4. As they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hold on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Folks, when God said, as truly as I live, the eternal and unchanging law of God is that the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of my, with, with, will be filled with my glory. Another place in the Old Testament says the knowledge of his glory. But what does being filled with his glory or being filled with the knowledge of his glory, what does that look like? It looks like Acts chapter 3. It looks like miracles being done that defy description. It looks like the name of Jesus being used to destroy the power of the devil. It looks like the day of miracles. The chief priests and the Pharisees questioned them. And in verse 7 it says, When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. In other words, they said, when we use the name of Jesus, Jesus came on the scene to do the work himself. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. 
But when they had commanded them to go aside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So that when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. The folks, it looks to me like they're already operating in boldness with the things that we've read previously. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Folks, there's a boldness, there's a confidence, there's a, uh, well, boldness, I guess, is the best word. There's a boldness that exists as a result of the healing power of God manifested that nothing else matches. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Then it tells us in the next few verses that there's a wave of giving that started among them. Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. We don't know exactly what the rest of that is, but in chapter 5, It tells us the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And after that, verse 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Just what they asked for. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Now, we already know that the church at Jerusalem has 3,000 people that were saved on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 people that were saved as a result of this man at the beautiful gate of the temple being healed, and believers being added daily to the, to the congregation of the church. Believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches 
that the, the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. What does the glory of the Lord filling the earth look like? It looks like a church that is majoring so much on the healing for the physical body that are magnifying to such a great degree the fact that Jesus bore our sins and our sicknesses to such a degree that they're laying people in the streets hoping that the, Peter, hoping that the shadow of Peter was passed by them or pass over them to bring healing to their bodies. Now, folks, remember in John chapter 5, the story of uh, Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. It tells us about how that there were five porches full of folks waiting for the troubling of the water. Because at some random times, the angel would appear and stir the water and the first one in got healed. Now, I'm not sure how often this is taking place. But it seems to me that it would have to be some kind of frequency for there to be five porches full of sick people all the time. I mean, if it's happening just once a month, I can't see the place being full of people waiting for that one-time occasion, once-a-month occasion. In the same way, for people to be laid in the streets on beds or couches or whatever, mats, whatever they can be transported in, how did they first discover that the shadow of Peter can heal people? Now, we don't have any record of healing by shadow in Jesus' ministry, so this would certainly qualify as a greater work that he spoke of in John chapter 14. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. How in the world did they first discover that Peter's shadow had healing power? It had to be a casual or an unexpected thing, at least in my thinking, But healing is being magnified and healings are occurring at such a pace that Peter's just walking up and down the streets, not stopping to lay hands on anybody, just letting his shadow transmit God's healing power to the sick in the streets. And the next verse confirms it. It tells us about how the fame went abroad to such a degree that people are coming 
Multitudes of people are coming from different regions, bringing the sick and afflicted with them. Now, it doesn't tell us how these people were ministered to, but it does tell us that every one of them got healed. Those healing became the business of the early church. And the result is that the name of Jesus is glorified. Now answer me this. These things, these results can only be the, res the results of the power of God, the healing power of God, the miracle working power of God. Why would God want that for the church in the early days, but not want that for the church in the latter days? Remember the eternal and unchanging laws. The first one we mentioned was the law of faith. As truly as I live, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. But the second eternal law, unchanging law, is just as prevalent where God said, the earth shall be filled with my glory. The man in Acts chapter 3, the crippled man, his healing brought 5,000 people into the kingdom of God in one short stretch of time. I don't know if it would be minutes or if it would be hours, but in a relatively short period of time, 5,000 people were added to the church. Why would God not want to do that today? Were the people in the early church days in greater need of a Savior than they are today? Were people in the early days of the church more needful of healing for their physical bodies than people that are sick today? As truly as I live, saith the Lord, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. I'm looking for notable miracles. I'm looking for people in situations the same as in Acts chapter 4. Where the religious can talk and debate about the power of God, whether it is for us today or not. But instead of debating, we'll just stand with the people that were healed. Now all that came about because of the boldness of a few disciples.
I'm looking for healing to return to, to be the business of the church, the primary business of the church, just like we see it in Acts chapter 3 and 4. What's going to bring it about? Is God going to have to raise up somebody that's got more power than the ones he has now? Is God going to have to raise up people that are operating in a greater sense of holiness than the church right now? Well, those two things are the very things that Peter addressed and said that it wasn't. It wasn't because of their holiness or a greater holiness than you and I have that the healing work was done. It's not because they had greater power to perform healings and miracles than the power available to the church today. So I guess I'm here to tell you this morning, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there's a wave of healing coming in the last days where people go back to being healed by shadow perhaps or maybe by the miracles that Paul experienced in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus Acts chapter 19 verse 11 and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body was taken into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and when they were laid upon the sick the sick were healed and evil spirits went out of those that had them no it went back to what they said they being the early church Grant unto your servants boldness. That kind of boldness that they prayed for turned the city of Jerusalem and the streets of Jerusalem into healing factories. What would it have been like to live in those days where people were being healed by a shadow and not just that unusual way was healing ministered to the sick but the important thing is that everyone that was sick and came to the church to receive healing, healing, it says they were healed every one. Thank God for his miracle working power. Folks, the boldness that we have is represented by the body and the blood of Jesus. the cause of the crippled man being healed. Peter said was by the name of Jesus and faith in that, in that name. 
was the name of Jesus stronger back then than it is now? Was the blood of Jesus more precious back then than it is today? Were the stripes that Jesus took upon his back any more connected with physical healing or healing for the physical body than it is today? These elements are the guarantee that we have for the eternal and unchanging law of God. The earth shall be filled with the glory of God. We serve an awesome God. We serve a God that's still in the healing miracle business. Gentlemen, will you come forward, please? 